that song just ended abruptly. Oh, well. Uh, the Inkstud CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, I was totally expecting to have more of an outro, and bam, it's done. Uh, this is our annual, semi-annual, this is kind of the second official year in a row of doing it, where uh, I talk about the best comics of the year with some folks who like comics, too. Um, I try and get folks who uh, are better about talking about comics than myself. This year is definitely no exception. I'm joined by, from Comics Comics, Mag, uh, Tim Hodler. I got you there, Tim? That's right. All right. And from uh, Attention Deficit... From Robot 6, Sean T. Collins. (laughs) (laughs) I always... Anytime anyone has to introduce me, I I deeply regret the tongue twister of a name. Attention Deficit Disorderly Too Flat. There you go. Yeah. I I, I get some kind of no prize for that. And lastly but not least is uh, Chris Mottner, also from... Robot Six, uh, but you've been involved with Robot Six a little bit longer than Sean, or extensively yeah, longer. Yeah, back back in them old, old school, I suppose. When you were a blog somewhere else, yeah, so to say, for lack of a better term. Back when we were that other other big news comic news website. Yeah. Um. Meanwhile, me, I just talk to folks. I got no good opinions. I depend on other people's opinions. And when I do have opinions, they tend to bother people. Um, So the plan this week is to kind of talk about the books over the last year. So what we did is I got each of these guys to come up with a list of uh, roughly 10 comics over the last year that they would like to talk about. Now, the comics we talk about won't necessarily be the best of the year. Um, that's something I really want to be careful about is we're not creating, this is the best comics to talk about. One that came up on the list was uh, Genesis, which I don't really feel like discussing since I already did a full hour on it with uh, Jeet here and one of the professors here at UBC. So I kind of nixed that one just to my own personal uh, proclivities. Um, also, huh? That was a mistake. My (laughs) mistake. Well, if you guys want to say something, I won't stop you. (laughs) I, I, I could stop you. Um, also, <laughs> if there's stuff that people don't like. Now, I don't know if anything you guys give in the list is stuff you don't like. Um, that was kind of, no one kind of said here or there of personal opinions. They just gave me lists of comics. Um, so I put together the list and we kind of talked over some of what we felt stuck out and some uh, obvious ones that have been on more than one list. And I think from there... I'm going to start out with, um, because this year is a little different year in comics, one person I saw, and I think it was the Daily Crosshatch, where uh, when Brian posted the list of everyone's best of the year, he kind of called it a golden age in comics. Now, before we jump into the comics, do you guys feel this is a golden age in comics? Who's first? Um, I, I Well... I would say I, we can kind of people have been kind of talking like it's been. It isn't. I think just something that's akin to 2009. I mean, it seems like people have been talking about this sub- alleged golden age for a couple of years now. Um, I think I think this kind of general period has been a phenomenal. Not just 2009, but past couple of years in general have been phenomenal in terms of the variety of public of different kinds of comics being published from reprints to. Me to superheroes to um, a manga to you know um, the Indian art scene um, you know just a f- phenomenal wealth of comics to the point where it's extremely difficult for any one person to keep track of it all um, and most of it being you know good to a lot of good I shouldn't say most but a good deal of it being good to exceptionally good um, and I don't think this year has been any exception in that in, in that in that sense. Anyone else want to jump in with a point? Yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, you know one one of the easiest ways to uh, kind of support the notion that we are in a golden age is is just the sheer number of uh, genres and and uh, you know sort of national comics traditions uh, and uh, you know even sort of, of of forgotten comics traditions that have just sort of been reclaimed and brought back before the comics reading uh, audience. I mean, it's, you know, between... The, uh, like, you just look at manga and the sheer amount of Tezuka that is now mm-hmm. available in fine English translations, or you, you look at something like uh, what then Nadell did with Art Out of Time and sort of bringing back these, uh, you know, they're not 
the sort of pantheon of the, you know, the masters of American comics, uh, you know, but there are people who are doing sort of personal, you know, comics where the personality uh, is evident on the page, um, uh, you know, and all the, you know, Jason being available over here and, um, you know, epileptic and, you know, all the European comics that, uh, you know, it's not just heavy metal anymore. Um, and that's even before you get to just the sort of astonishing number of high-quality uh, art comics and literary comics from, you know, some publishers that have been around for a while, like Fantagraphics from Drawn and Quarterly, and then, you know, slightly younger Top Shelf, but Buena Ventura, Bodega, um, Ad House, uh, Picture Box, uh, Secret Acres. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's really just astonishing. And, you know, I, I don't even need to go into... Um, you know, the, the superhero area all that much, since I don't think we're going to be talking about it all that much this evening, but um, I just think also in this decade you saw the sort of the, the rise of the writer again after a decade of, uh, comp, you know, superhero comics that were driven by um, flashy art, but really kind of horribly unreadable stories. Uh, and, you know, you can quibble about your Grant, Grant Morrison's and Brian Bendis's and stuff, but I just think there's a level of craft even in that area that you haven't seen in a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could step in for a second, I think it's very, very difficult to judge that kind of thing while you're still in that period. A lot of the stuff that I think um, we might think is really amazing now might seem kind of boring and mundane and you know, run-of-the-mill 10 years from now. And I think uh, you know, it's just hard to tell. Um, I think it's definitely in a golden age of reprints, like just... Um, just a sheer amount of quantity of this classic stuff that's coming out in beautiful editions. Um, but it's harder to tell. There's always a few, like, major works that, that obviously, you know, belongs in any kind of classic, future classics list. But it's hard to tell some of this stuff how long it's going to last. I have to really strongly agree with that. I, uh, and I feel like what we're seeing right now is the beginning of a curve. Mm-hmm. Um, where we're seeing a lot of folks that my experience talking to are all around the same age group. A lot of the new kids coming in, really creating great stuff. They're all like late 20s, early 30s, a lot of early 30s, mid 30s. Um, but even those guys who are putting out these stellar works still haven't put out their best works yet. Mm, and right, I, true. Um, yeah. Like Kevin Heisenga is, is probably a prime example of that, who, you know, everything he's, most of the stuff he's been doing, say 90%, is all fantastic, incredible, excellent. But he still hasn't made his big. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily. Think so? I mean, I think that's true, but he might never do a major long work, and I think that's you know fine. I think. Um, I think he's gearing up for it. Well, you maybe don't so. Think, you don't I don't know. I'm just saying done, that, like, like using Crumb as an example, until Genesis, he never did anything that was really long, mm-hmm. and I think it's hard to think of anyone more important. But I think like Crumb in that aspect, it, that's someone who comes from a different school of narrative too though where like most of his peers did not do extended works either except for that's true like, but Justin I don't know Green if that's and... really important we'll <laughs> <laughs> shut down well let's jump into the comics then we're about quarter past and um, one of the big ones that a lot of people put on a lot of lists and I kind of don't still don't know what my exact opinion is about it it kind of shifts from here there is um, Dave Mazzuchelli's Astros Polyp I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Why? I just knew that was next on your on the tip of your tongue. Well, I mean, it's at the top of the list. We went around. Um, well, here, here's my thing: Is it a great graphic novel, comic? I don't like graphic novel term personally, but um, is it a great book, or is it an exercise in comicking? Well, it's no Ron the Space Knight. No. <laughs> But Ditko's not involved this time, so. Um, I don't know. Anyone else want to take a stab at that first? Go. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it comes across as sterile uh, in the way that, uh, you know, saying it's an exercise in comics might uh, imply. Um, you know, if anything, I think, uh, the, you know, if it has a fault in that regard, it's that it's maybe a little too uh, hard on sleeve and a little too, um, uh, you know, predictable in terms of the the character arcs in a sort of middle brow way. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think maybe the question becomes: um, is the fact that it's really just such a, you know, an outrageously 
lovely to look at um, and exciting to to read, you know, in a visual sense. Uh, is that good enough? Um, and uh, you know, it's been a while since I read it. I read it at the very beginning of the year. I had gotten sent a review copy really ridiculously early. I was like, like I'm not sure why they sent it to me that early. And so I reviewed it even after I'd had it for a few months, and I was still way, way ahead of the release date. So it's been a while. But, um, you know, I remember just really, really enjoying the experience of reading it. And uh, to me, that sort of negates the idea that it's just sort of like, I'm going to do some stuff with color, and now I'm going to do some stuff with line, and I'm going to do some stuff with layout, and uh, and call it a day, you know? Well... I mean, I don't, first of all, I mean, I think one of the big complaints, one of the criticisms of the book, if I've read it correctly, is that there's a sense that um, the book is so engaged in kind of formalist aspects that the characters come off as unengaging or um, or flat. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that's true. I had I found, I found myself caring very much, you know, what happened to Asterios throughout the book. I found myself, you know, very much engaged in the characters, even though they are obviously and very blatantly kind of representations for, um, you know, states of thought, uh, emotional states, um, you know. And I think it's all, all, it's all, you know, like it's all very upfront. I mean, also, I think, um, you know, his playing with color, his um, his playing with his with the lines, the different fonts. It's obviously not just there for the sake of. Um, you know, just because, just to throw, just to throw out his bag of tricks and show what they can do. It's all there for the. It is all there for the sake of the story. You can argue about whether or not the story itself is one worth telling. You know, whether it's just Doc Hollywood in a, in a fancy, you know, hardcover volume. But I don't think you could. I, um, I'm a little. Um, when people say, "Well, it's just a bunch," you know, it's just a bunch of. He's just throwing out, you know, little formalist tricks just because he can. I don't think that's. I don't think that's accurate. I, I agree with that very much. Um, I do think that the hype was so strong that um, before it came out that it was it would be hard for anything to live up to it. Um, and I think that has in some ways led to a backlash more than it probably deserves. I, I also, I think I'm sorry, go ahead. Backlash might just be the anti-art comics crowd, too. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, what? Those group of people. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I say they. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they. We know who they are. You know, the people who uh, have this kind of just natural distaste for any comic that tries to, um, quote unquote, be literature, whatever you want to take from that. Um, you know, and that kind of, that engages in this kind of formalist play. There's uh, there's a group of people. Um, and don't ask me to name names, but who kind of bristle maybe against that sort of that aspect of it? You know, the same people who kind of maybe don't who can't um, don't try to engage. You know, maybe Brian Chippendale or or the Fort Thunder crowd or Kramer's. Um, and I think they might be having the same reaction towards towards Asterios. Oh, that's it. I yeah, wouldn't I... have thought that was true of this particular book, but that's interesting. Oh, I, I think I... I think I think it is there. Mm-hmm. I think there's a general reaction against proficiency a lot of times. Like, it's funny, uh, you know, you just said that, uh, you know, people feel that the, you know, he got so caught up in formal play that, uh, you know, the characters are not engaging. I mean, you hear the same complaint about Chris Ware, that it's cold and sterile. And yeah. it's all, you know, it's it's this lovely diagrammatic mm-hmm. um, design, but there's, you know, there's no heart to it. And I, I, to me, that's just, like, cockamamie in the extreme. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and you know I think the same I I, I don't think Asterios Pollock is as good as where um but you know I, I, you also have seen the same thing I think in film you know not to digress too much but I remember that being a huge complaint about uh, No Country for Old Men was that it's so studied and lovely a film that it's uh somehow dispassionate and I never got that either mm-hmm. I, I think for me the most important thing was that it got him working and publishing again and um you know, it's been so long that I hope it just like uh, leads to more stuff, or at least uh, easily uh, um, viable uh, rubber blankets. Right. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Boy, I'd like to see that. <laughs> I'm going to go uh, something in a completely different direction. Something that wears its heart on its sleeve is uh, Carol Tyler's "You'll Never Know." What do you guys think about that one? Do you think it? it it deserves much hype, or is it yet another autobio comic? 
It's definitely uh, I, not. I don't think it's yet another autobio comic. I, I just that's not something I would I would ever say. Um, I just think it's unfair to hold, you know, the genre against a book like that. Mm -hmm. um, my my problem with it is this: that just that um, I I just don't feel that the uh, the personal nature of her project, you know, sort of trying to, finding solace, um, you know, in the face of her sort of disintegrating marriage by attempting to reconstruct the story of her father's uh, sort of hushed-up military experience during World War II, uh, I just don't think that the connections that she's making internally really come across, um, you know, in the book itself. You know, like she sort of presents this idea that, uh, you know, what her father experienced in uh, Italy in combat, you know, something horrible happened, and this is sort of the missing puzzle piece that explains why he's this damaged person. Uh, the problem is that throughout the book, He's not a particularly damaged person. I mean, he's kind of gruff, but he's like this brilliant handyman. He's a great dancer. He, uh, you know, he swept the hottest girl on the base off her feet. Um, you know, he, he, you know, he's an entertaining, funny, capable, lovable guy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, I, I realized as I was reading the book and sort of thinking, wrapping, you know, collecting my thoughts about it at the end, that it's a really similar project. To what Spiegelman was doing in Mouse, um, Spiegelman, the, you know, the, the character, quote unquote, mm -hmm. you know, uh, putting together this memoir uh, of his father's experience in World War II. Um, but there, you, it was abundantly clear the damage that had been done to his parents and his parents' entire generation. Um, whereas here, I, I just, it just never cohered for me in a way that made me feel like, you know, this story was something that I could get something out of in addition to her getting something out of putting it together. I thought it was it was a very different book than I expected it to be before I read it, um, from what I'd heard. I thought it would be a lot more about World War II and her father than it ended up being. It seemed it was like much it was much more about her current or current at the time she was making the book situation. Um, I thought that was that was kinda interesting. I agree it didn't really cohere. I'm not sure if that will be remedied when the future volumes come out. It, just, it was very unsatisfying, I felt, as by itself. Whether or not it will be improved with uh, further volumes, I don't know. I one think... thing I... Oh, just real quick. Um, I think really, I really like her work in general, and I, um, especially her short work. And I was, it seemed like um, with this long piece, it kind of meandered more um, than she did. But it's her like a three- or four-page story. She just kind of cuts right to it. And in this case, I felt there was a lot of filler, maybe. Or I don't know, that's the way I read it. Mm -hmm. Well, like that uh, one-pager she did in the Krimmers Got Seven last year, where so much was put in into yeah. that one piece. Yeah, absolutely. It was like very dense and very... I mean, she's still such a likable presence that it made up for a lot, even though I yeah. felt sometimes the book was a little weak. I, I think the word I came up for was affable. Which, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think... Go ahead. I know. I was gonna say. I actually. I, I like the book. Um, I think I, I'm hearing you. I think some of your critic guys' criticism is valid. Um, I think it, to some extent it, it's fault that I'm. I'm hoping. Certainly, I think um, we're kind of reading it in. You know, it's incomplete, and the first volume, in many ways, is a lot of setup. I didn't mind the meandering at all. Matter of fact, that was kind of one of the things I liked about it. And I didn't, I didn't get the feeling like he was damaged so much as that he had these secrets. There was this part of him that was not available to the rest of the family to an extent, and that there was this major part of his life that was closed off, and that, you know, um, and to that extent, so it's, it's sort of a little different from what. Um, in, in Mouse, although I, I think you're right in making that comparison, um, it's kind of it's kind of apparent, a very apparent comparison. Um, but I mean, overall, I really enjoyed the flow. I enjoyed the way she. I really liked the way she set up the book, almost making it look at times like a scrapbook. Um, you know, um, I really enjoyed her the way the way her characters talk and their conversational style and the back and forth between each other. Um, and I really just kind of liked the flow of it in that sense. And I, I kind of got kind of I got that kind of out of it is what I enjoyed about it. My wife agreed with you, but I remember feeling she felt the same way that you did that the Mandarin was kind of you know charming and part of the, the appeal. Um, but I, I remember like this that first like twenty it felt like it took forever <laughs> to get going. Like I said, I'm going to interview my dad. My dad said some things you don't know what they are, and there was really no reason to be interested yet because I've read so many and seen so many things about World War II veterans that. Um, it's hard to get work. Uh, gradually, eventually, I got you know caught up in it. 
Um, it's a little like Alan's War in that sense, the um, from last year, mm-hmm. and that you're being set up to thinking it's going to be this certain kind of book, and it kind of ends up kind of not turn, kind of taking you on a different journey. Mm-hmm. It's not about the war; it's about the experience, I guess. Th- that's a good comparison because I didn't like Alan's War either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do a quick song break because we're about half past. You guys have wow, a... Wow, time flies. Time does fly, but we're having a good time. How long do you think this will be? This will be... Uh, we're about halfway through, so another half hour. Okay. I mean, I meant the song break. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be about th- uh, four minutes. I'm going to okay, play a you. PSA and then the song. So we'll be right back. Inkstead, CITR okay. 101.9. It's been 24 hours. Got my money? Oh, I, you know what? Just give me till next Friday. I'll have it for you. Oh. Oh, that's funny. I could have sworn I said have it today. Yeah, I don't have it. Sorry. Oh, well, all right then. Mmm, that's good, OJ. Ah! Yeah, that hurt? Ah! That hurt? What the hell? Yeah? Ah! Thank you to all the donors who pledged their financial support during the CITR on-air fund drive. We are moved by your generosity, and thank you for enabling us to purchase new equipment and improve our programming. Do remember to stop by the station, pay your pledges, and pick up your prizes. We look forward to meeting you anytime between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. on weekdays. Thank you again for your amazing response. Listen to our happy voices on the air, happier after we purchase new equipment for our studios. Thanks again. You got till 5 o'clock, you hear me? You got till 5 o'clock! You freaking psychopath! Uh, Clean yourself up.
And we're back, Ink Studs, CITR 101.9 FM. We are currently doing our best of 2009 show. Um, let's just jump back into it. We've only discussed two comics. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Great. a longer list than that. Um, speed round. <laughs> you got 10 seconds. What do you think of Multiforce? Okay, you can have more than 10 seconds. Um, so, yeah, Multiforce, uh, that's... Um, I think that's going to be one of the more challenging books that came out this year, if that's a good way of putting it. What do you guys think? Someone else should go before me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll go, I'll go. Um, Matt Brinkman is actually a cartoonist I was sort of weaned on, um, which is very bizarre. But my personal story of immersion in comics uh, really only encompasses this particular decade. And I got into... Uh, high water very very early on in my serious reading of comics like within the first few months um so very early on i was exposed to the fort thunder guys so i've never found it as baffling or as uh you know even enraging as a lot of people seem to find it and uh brinkman i oddly almost always found the most accessible um and you know in this particular case uh I actually think it's a pretty easy book to get a handle on just in terms of uh, the effect that reading it has and, and just sort of, you know, the, it's got the typical Fort Thunder uh, approach of sort of, you know, watching characters sort of negotiate a space and their movements throughout the space sort of enabling you to get a sense of where you are and what kind of environment you're in. Um, so, you know, it's a very physical comic like that. Um but I think when I reviewed it, I, I, I called it sort of like an apocalypse, a Ragnarok of repleteness, and it's uh, just about how uh, his ability to fill a page like that um, can be used to sort of connote uh, chaos and entropy and this uh, giant underground city sort of falling apart at the seams because of these giant destructive monsters being let loose in it. And I guess, you know, philosophically you can make of that what you will. Anyone else want to jump in? Uh, I, I would. I, I feel somewhat constrained um, by the fact that uh, I'm involved with the publisher of the book, but um, I would say I would agree that this particular. I think there's some. It's a little bit difficult in some ways because some of the storylines overlap in unusual ways, and you have to be paying attention. But overall, it's pretty. To me, it seems pretty straightforward in terms of just storytelling. Um, and easy, uh, ease of reading. I don't know. I think some of the, some of the other Fort Thunder-related artists are a little bit more difficult, but I don't know. I don't, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Did you actually have problems reading it, Robin? Or? No, I'm just kind of... Uh, I actually haven't even finished it yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall having any problems reading it. I mean, I think it, is, I think it is straightforward, but I mean, I think, on the other hand, kind of when you get kind of used to that kind of style, I'm not sure it's... Um, I could, I could easily, I could also see someone coming at it and being a little confused. Um, I, I could see someone not even trying um, because it looks kind of strange and grungy, maybe before you start reading it. Like kind of like a, I mean, it's obviously much better than this, but it looks kind of like a high school kid, you know, scrawlings. Um, kind of like on the, the ideal high school kid. Listening but, uh, to Guns N' Roses. High school kid ever. <laughs> right. Uh, but but once I think once you actually get started, I mean, I don't know, that's the way I felt when I first read it, you know, I was reading these things in Paper Rodeo 10 years ago or however long ago it was. Um, it just was very exciting and kind of just, I felt like just really easy to read. I, the other advantage, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, John. I think the other advantage to this book, um, or uh, advantage isn't quite the right word, but the hook for it is that uh, as opposed to Territory Heights, which was, uh, you know, largely silent and at times very grim. This is a very funny book. Um, his sort of stoner patter for these characters is, is a scream. And uh, I'd always enjoyed the this, this sort of little, uh, you know, almost like one-panel gag comics he would do with uh, these monsters, you know, where there'd be a little monster and then be some gigantic, horrifying monster, and the little monster would be going you know, it would say, like, oh, great, who's this asshole? <laughs> um, I always found that really funny, uh, and it's sort of it was just sort of a treat uh, for me who hadn't been following it in Paper Rodeo to see the sort of combination of these two modes. You know, these 
extravagant video game subterranean environments and these little creatures, but then also that sort of humor injected into it. I find that kind of effect interesting in general, where I'll, I'll be reading something someone writes about an artist or talking to some of them about a cartoonist, and just based on when they started following that cartoonist, they all have radically different ideas of, of what they're about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like for myself, I'm more excited about his silt screen work. Mm-hmm. I got that uh, Denny Cree book he did, and just like I'll sit there and stare at it for hours. Just Which one. book was that? Mm-hmm. He did a book for uh, Denny Cree. Okay. That's that French company that does all those fancy things. And it's basically like a, I don't know, like 32 page book that's every page is silk screen print wow. that he did. And it's amazing. Like you look through it, and there's all these layers of colors. And that stuff excites me more, but that's just my personal taste. There's something mm-hmm. for everyone. There is. Um, one book that I absolutely loved and had me jumping in excitement when I heard they were going to start reprinting his stuff is uh, Jacques Tardy's You Are There. Did you all read that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Amazing? Am I alone? <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. It's, you know, it's, it, Tardy has, it's a thing, interesting thing about Tardy is so many people, I, I think over like the past, what, 20, 30 years even, have tried to bring his work mm-hmm. to the United States. He was in Raw number one with, uh, I think, Manhattan. He was in Raw. He was. He's been in Heavy Metal. I mean, the Heavy Metal stuff. Tried a to publish rough. him. I mean, you could you could make a dark horse. MBM. Yeah, I mean, everyone under this, and they've all utterly failed. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, completely and utterly failed. And and, and reading the two, um, you are there, and um, the other book, West, uh, West Coast, Coast Blues. Blues m- you know, it's it's you coming at. I, I'm found. I was coming at this book, all you know, wanting to explore Tardy, but also wondering what is it about him that is so foreboding to Western audiences <laughs> that people aren't getting out of, say, Persepolis or um, you know, other or Trondheim or other French authors that um, you know, while they might have had more, some difficulty acclimating, are are starting to become more. Um, we're starting to see them crop up more and more, whereas Tardy seems to be this hurdle. And I'll be, I'm very curious to see if now the Fantagraphics is trying this ambitious project, if um, it really does, um, if, if more American audiences find him to be accepting. I liked You Were There. I liked it more than East Coast Blues. Um, I, I feel I, I kind of stumble when I try to talk about it because I end up, I end up kind of, with the basic saying, well, it's very French. <laughs> that's not really a good, that's really not a good criticism of it. <laughs> right. Um, there's a very standoffishness about Tardy. There's a very, there's a very distant remove, very existential remove, and it's very apparent East Coast Blues. It's, you Are There is a much warmer book, I think. I think um, the problem with that, that some folks may have with Tardy where uh, you won't have with someone like Safar or Satrapi is he places an expectation on the reader um, of a certain investment in reading that where you don't necessarily have to put into these other works. I think that's true. I wonder if it's really fair to be... I mean, if you, if you think until recently, and that's really... I mean, Trondheim has been tried again and again, too, before recently, you know, kind of hitting. And I wonder if, uh, now, are there really yeah. any European cartoonists who really, besides Hergé or someone like that, who, um, you know, really did make it? in the United States um, Mobius or North America uh, even he I mean he keeps going out of print um, well that's not because of uh, lack of interest yeah I don't he might be I, don't, I think that's a, a still that's kind of a gray area in some ways I mean he's very influential but is it really was it wide, was it really that widespread success I'm not sure I th- at, at, it, at its time it was I well, remember those epic books being pretty popular they're yeah even if even if even granting him I think um you know, I think now is really when all this stuff is actually finally getting a toehold, and I'll be curious. I think it's the first time he's been published after that um, has happened. I think in some ways it's even more, what's more interesting is that he has been chosen to be published so many times and translated and brought here. Like, that shows you how strong a cartoonist so many people, so many publishers think he is. Right. I, I, I think the Fanographics uh, project, uh, to the extent that it has caught on or succeeded, is probably too early to tell. Um, there's a couple of things going for it. Uh, one is the really tremendous design of these mm-hmm. things. I mean, they just look awesome. Uh, and I guess it was, it was Adam Grano who did it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they have that look like the, uh, the, the equally awesome-looking Love and Rockets digests. Um, that just sort of made the work make sense to me in a way that they hadn't before. And, 
you know, certainly I was drawn to these in a way that I might not have been uh, had the design not been as strong. The second was starting with West Coast Blues, um, you know, which is just a sort of hard-boiled uh, noir. I mean, it's, yes, it's very French, but it, it's also just a crime story that, you know, you, you could you could sort of see Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips doing in Criminal, and uh, it would look very different and read very different. It wouldn't but, be as um, good. Yeah, it's Sorry. not like a completely alien experience. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're, no, it would not be as good. That's true. It wouldn't be as good. Um, you are there really threw me for a loop because this is a good. This is a sort of case in point of me coming in late to the game, not having really any idea what to expect from Tardy other than the the crime novel that I had just read, and then I get this incredibly verbose. Existential. weird dude in a bowler hat running around on top of these <laughs> walls and I was like what the hell is this and then eventually you know my memories from French class in high school and college kicked in and I remembered Ionesco and Jari and Beckett yeah, I, and I was like ah okay I see yeah. what's going on and then I could really appreciate it um, and see it sort of in the same light that I see uh, Multiforce in that it's a sort of fantastical you know it's about evoking this sort of fantastical environment and the state of mind that goes with being in that environment I think one thing that missed out with your there is just the fact that the the names would have made more sense in the French version. Like, it played such a role in the characters of who they were that I don't know if that... I mean, I know Kim Tronson tried really hard to transition that, but I don't know if it really worked quite to the extent that we would have loved. Right. I mean, I, I liked both books, don't get me wrong. Um I um, I think I like you are there more than I said East Coast, you know, right? West, West Coast, Coast is yeah. really me. But um, yeah, this, it, the way you're just saying comparing it to Multiforce, um, it is interesting that uh, they both kind of have that uh, that same. I think that's uh, what Dickens said about uh, what's his name, the writer uh, here with the Palliser novels. Um, this is like taking, like grabbing a handful of dirt and lifting it up, and you see the little creatures living on it, like little Earth. Like a like a snow globe full of like a community, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like they both have this kind of this pull out Contained. this world, and you can just observe the different creatures living in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah. kind of an interesting effect that I like. I'm going to move on to another comic, um, the photographer, uh, another European, Emmanuel Guibert's uh, mammoth epic, which I know uh, Sean, you uh, did you sp- how long how much of today did you spend on it? <laughs> my whole afternoon <laughs> we have to talk about it just because of that um i uh i found that i did not like it and i i i'm not super surprised because a lot of the problems with it were the same problems that i had with alan's war which is that i just find bears uh art stiff mm-hmm. and illustrative rather than uh cartooning. Well, I think with that one, it's specifically stiff, too. Like yes, yes. Uh, you know, and, and it, it's not helped by the, the constant uh, interruption of great boxes of narrative captions and the insertion of these photographs. There's really very little attention to uh, any kind of image-to-image flow, any kind of uh, sort of uh, accruing of, of, of meaning, either by, you know, you know, uh, juxtaposition or, you know, composition of a page. And then uh, what really bummed me out was at the end of the book, there's this really terrific sequence where he gets stranded by himself on a mountaintop and uh, believes in his heart that he's going to die. And uh, it's beautifully illustrated by Guibert, and then it cuts away to these amazing photographs that he took, believing that these are the last photographs he was going to take and sort of trying to record where he died. Mm-hmm. Um you know, spoiler alert, he lives. But, uh, <laughs> well, not too you long. know, the fact that that sequence was so strong and then just the rest of it was so sort of flat and lifeless, uh, really, it may, you know, paradoxically, it maybe it made it uh, harder for me to deal with the book because it just seemed like a lot of wasted potential. That's interesting. I had the complete opposite reaction. I, I really liked that book a lot. Matter of fact, that, that might be one of my favorite books of the year. Um, and oh, I mean, one of the things I really, I just, on a formal level, I just really found it the the idea of just the incorporation of the photography with um, 
Javert's art really found the way it flowed together so that the photographs actually became like comic panels in and of themselves. Um, and I really found myself engrossed in his travels and the story of, you know, what was going on with Doctors Without Borders and, the, and these stories, like the, like the story of the, um, the, little, the mother and the little boy who keep, who's, who's crying. I, I found that incredibly effective and moving. And um, it just seemed a really smart, judicious use of um, when to use photos, when to use um, his own art. Um, how to incorporate them together, and um, you know when to go with no backgrounds, when to um, when to use incredibly, when to show a lot of detail to get a sense of place. Um, I, I just found myself kind of really impressed with um, just the overall package and how it how it flowed together. And I mean, I certainly agree with you about that that last sequence where he's up on the mountain by himself and thinking he's going to die but I, I overall I thought the whole book really really worked very well that's one four and one again to be the tiebreaker <laughs> I liked it I, uh, I, I do um, kind of feel a little weird about the illustration style I know it's purposeful and I do think it's in a book that a lot of folks that don't regularly read comics will read and maybe find it dry but at the same time they're also going to find it engaging because the work is so um it's kind of timely right now in a way which i think is important as far as like kind of understanding a bigger picture of what's been going on in the world that a lot of less nuanced folks maybe would understand or have a, a good gauge on what's going on um so I, th- I think it's a timely book it's a good book uh i do think it's a dry book in some ways though yeah and so. i wasn't able to locate the book until a couple of days ago and so I haven't read it. I think there's always a danger with any kind of book that's topical, whether it's this or footnotes in Gaza, which I haven't read, or any kind of that in that year. You're always in danger mm-hmm. of the fact that it's topical or it deals with a quote-unquote important subject, that you're going to be drawn to the subject and not the story, the, the telling itself. Well, and I think that's a point of the book. It's not about the 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 cartooning at all and it's about the subject it's about didier and about his experience and about the time in afghanistan and about what was going on in afghanistan mm-hmm. so I, sh- I should say in my own uh defense sort of that i i know that a lot of the things that i had problems with in this book were conscious choices um you know from the sort of flat style of the illustration to presenting the journey as this sort of um featureless morass of detail rather than this sort of grand adventure. Um, you know, I, I, I know what he was doing and why he was doing it. Um, I just, I, you know, it just didn't, it just didn't click for me. And that's fine. Um, yeah. I'm going to move us ahead on to, uh, I'm going to do something for our Canadians. Uh, Seth George Sprott. What do you oh, got? I thought they got taken off the list. Oh, I almost forgot about that. <laughs> Jeez, so much stuff came out this year. I know. <laughs> I, I, I thought you guys really enjoyed Pilgrim. it. Um, I thought uh, I, I, I have grown into liking Seth more as time has gone on. Um, I used to find him, you know, the typical, the typical snotty, you know, just boring about that old man type stuff. But um, I've uh, I've gradually grown to appreciate him more and more. I thought. This, this book in particular was I, I have uh, I read it in its original serialization but um, it, it's just, it's just uh, there's a lot of layers going on and you can if you want to dismiss it you can but uh, this, the different different critiques he's making of uh, people will say it's nostalgic but he's making a lot of critiques of nostalgia actually and it's, yeah. mm-hmm. I think it's kind of fascinating I would agree with that anyone else? very little comments for, uh, for Mr. Seth? I'll move on to the next then. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, want, I, want, I think I think one of the things about Seth is that he's someone who works in a very particular vein, mm-hmm. and I think, um, and that's probably where some of that criticism comes from, is that he that he does seem to have he's one of those artists who does seem to have a very specific narrative theme and drive, and I think some people mistake it, like Tim says, for just being purely about nostalgia. That he's got purely nostalgic bent, and that's not that's not the case. Um, you know, I think Sprout was a great book. I think in terms of um, you know the way he used this, the large size and format. Um, I was really fascinated with one of the things he did with the way he'd group the panels on a page so that they were almost discrete units 
in mm-hmm. and of themselves. I thought that made for the reading experience a very, very interesting reading experience. I think it's a very planned book, very uh, carefully executed book, mm-hmm. but I love it nonetheless. Something that I haven't read and probably won't read, 20th Century Boys. I'm bad with my manga. I'll be honest, I don't read much manga or manga. Sorry. But a lot of people seem to like this book. I love 20th Century I just, uh, I just made my way through volumes one through five in very rapid succession. And, um, you know, it's a terrific piece of genre entertainment, which is not uh, the backhanded compliment that it sounds like. <laughs> um, uh, so certainly not coming from me, at least. There's nothing uh, wrong with genre. Let's just no, say that not at now. all, not at all. I mean, th- th- I would agree with that to a fault, probably in the eyes of some people. Um, uh, I-, I-, I think the problem that I have with Urasawa's work is that the art uh, is just functional, um, which is not to say that it's just adequate because it's actually very strong and lively. Um, you know, his character designs are a lot of fun. You don't get tired of looking at these people. Um, it's crystal clear which when you're doing um, thrillers and suspense and mysteries and it's being translated from a different language with its own set of cultural cues into ours, um, you know, the clarity of the art is really crucial. Um, But it doesn't have a... Its style is sort of an unstyle. Like, it's just sort of there to present you the story in as effective a fashion as it can. And that's what, to me, prevents it from sort of uh, making the jump from like really fun and engaging and sort of crazy twisting you know uh, horror thriller sci-fi apocalyptic whatever it is uh, to you know genuinely great art um, just doesn't connect on that level for me I think it's difficult to tell this early in um, I would say that uh, this the volume 5 in particular which you just read it changed what I it changed so dramatically the story that it made me think uh, it was going somewhere a lot different than I thought it was going to be. Um, and I think we're just, right now, it's like a quarter of the way or a fifth of the way through. Um, I think uh, everything you're saying could turn out to be true. <laughs> but it could be. I think I think he's actually probably working on uh, uh, weaving some stuff in that isn't necessarily evident yet. Um, this is me being generous. Um, but it just is uh, based on his other his other books, I think that's probably what's going, what's going on. What was that? Based on his other books that I've read, uh, like Pluto, for example, I think that has turned out to have you know more going on than it seemed to at first. Yeah, I really no, I think I, I agree with Sean. I mean, I haven't read Volume Five yet, so now I really have to. Now I'm going to have to go and buy it tonight, uh, based <laughs> on what you just said. But um, I just think it's a really, really slam bang, you know, great piece of genre entertainment. And I know right now it seemed like initially it seemed like when it came out with Pluto that people seemed to really favor Pluto more mm-hmm. because it was this kind of twisting of the you know this kind of reimagining of the classic Tezuka story. Um, whereas I kind of found Pluto, I enjoyed Pluto. I mean, I only read the first two volume, first three volumes, but um, I found Pluto to be a little more devoid of some of the humor and a bit more kind of indulging in the kind of certain sentimentality. Um, that 20th Century Boys that, that was almost guilty that Monster was guilty of at times his, his, right. his previous work and I, do, I don't find that in 20th Century Boys and that may be why I like, I'm enjoying 20th Century Boys more and why I like it as much as I do um, because I think it does have a sense of humor about itself and, and I mean, maybe that all changes now, now you've got me really curious well, I, think it's, <laughs> I think it's the better work too at least so far like, I haven't read the end of Pluto either so I don't really Although that's much closer, um, but uh, I think you're right, and I think it's interesting. I, I don't, I can't recognize, I can't distinguish voices very well at this volume level. So I don't, I'm not sure who made the point about uh, the art <laughs> it's, it's being all right. more functional. But um, it is interesting. I'm not sure if that's um, necessarily a criticism or not, but it's definitely a description um, that seems accurate to me. And I, I feel like there's different cartoonists who who work that way almost more as writers than as yeah. artists. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I, I tend to compare it to, um, you know, mentally compare it to uh, superhero comics, you know, in that it's sort of, a, you know, the sort of pop mainstream. Yeah. I mean, quote-unquote mainstream. I don't think superhero comics are mainstream, actually. I think it's But, uh, you know, and, and when I think about the superhero comics artists that I love, um, they do things that aren't necessary to conveying the information of the plot. 
mm-hmm. like uh, John Romita Jr. and the wrinkly clothes that he draws and the way he draws hair as this sort of um, box of, you know, box of uncooked spaghetti sticking out from people's heads. Um, that's not necessary to conveying whatever's happening with Iron Man. Right. Um, you know, he could be a, like a more realistic artist if he wanted, uh, but he's not, and that's to me what makes him an artist. I think that's true, uh, but he's not uh, I just writing. Don't see that in Urasawa compared so to a lot of ways, that's, other that's manga artists I've read. One of his ways of putting himself into the stories, as opposed to you know with Urasawa, he everything is a way of putting himself into the story. If that makes sense, boys, our time is up. Oh, no. Huh. And I, I just got to make a note. This is only we discussed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven comics. There's a whole bunch we didn't. Oh, actually, eight. I forgot. Can we do this again next week? <laughs> oh, who wants to get together on Christmas Eve? <laughs> um, I don't have a life. <laughs> I'll be working. Uh, Masterpiece Comics, Pim and Francie, Cold Heat, One Eight Hundred Mice, Drifting Life, Gogo Monster, uh, Big Questions, Boys Club, Number Three, Cockbone, Ganges Three, Gin and Jam, Simpsons Treehouse Special, and. I think of Chris. You want to talk about Blackest Night? Um, Sean want to talk that about was Blackest me. Night. That was, <laughs> that was Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Don't didn't mean that's, a, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> no one deserves that blame. Uh, <laughs> that's just the same. I wanted to talk about Prison Pit. Prison Pit. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of comics that we did not get a chance to talk about, and already I'm over time. So really, go to your comic store and uh, take a look. And take. Do you guys all have top ten lists up on your uh, respective sites? Respective sites. I don't uh, believe yeah. in them. Okay. I, d- I don't. I usually wait until after Christmas when I can have more time to read. <laughs> Good point. Um, well, check out what these guys have to say in their separate <laughs> blogs. Anyways, comics, hey. comics, mag. Blogspot. Uh, com. Robot six. Comic book resources. Dot com and I'm not even going to try with you, Sean. It's all too flat. Dot com. I'll do okay. it. <laughs> and, and Robin, don't forget, you owe me pictures of your bookshelves. Oh, trust me, it's uh, waiting. It's I'm got to go to the bookbindery. I have four books of Alex Toth's book that I need to get bound, all and right. I, I can't show that without the Toth stuff bound. <laughs> that was my bragging for the day. Thank you so much, guys. And one Thank day you. I will be up on the shelf porn on Comic Book or on uh, Robot Six. Thanks, guys. All right, thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Bye. Um, thank you so much to those guys. Next week, uh, it will be Christmas Eve, so there will be no ink studs on the air. Um, I will be posting interviews up on the website, inkstuds.com, including uh, interviews with uh, Aaron Nels Steinke. I'll be talking to Brian Lee O'Malley uh, pretty soon. I'll be posting an interview with him, as well on uh, New Year's Eve. We'll be playing an interview I did with Dean Motter of Mr. X fame. Thank you so much, guys. You were great. I really wish we had another half hour, because honestly, we had so much more to talk about. Up next is Japanese Music Waste. So long.